Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Welcome to the Serial Killer Podcast, the podcast dedicated to serial killers, who they were, what they did, and how. Episode 183. I am your Norwegian host, Thomas Rosaland Vyborg Thun. Tonight, we take a break from the most depraved serial killers imaginable, and instead take a look at one of the more obscure ones. As I have said in earlier episodes, most serial killers are not very well known in the general population. Also, in our current media climate, serial killers are not sensationalized in the same way they were back in the 70s, 80s, and early 90s. It is therefore that I bring to you the story of a serial murderer out of the ordinary. That took place at the very end of the last millennium. It happened in picturesque environs, and concerned none other than Carrie Stainer, the Yosemite Slayer. Enjoy. As always, I want to publicly thank my elite TSK Producers Club. Their names are Boo, Brenda, Cassandra, Christy, Cody, Colleen, Connor, Corbin, Craig, Sid, Derek, Emily, Fawn, James, Jennifer, John, Johnny, Jonathan, Caitlin, Kathy, Christina, Kylie, Lance, Lisa, Lisbeth, Magic Man, Madeline, Meow, Missy, Nick, Oakley, Operation Brownie Pockets, Robert O, Robert R, Russell, Sabina, Scortnia, Scott, Sputnik, The Radio, Trent, Val, and Vanessa. You are the backbone of the Serial Killer Podcast, and without you, there would be no show. You have my deepest gratitude. Thank you. I am forever grateful for my elite TSK Producers Club, and I want to show you that your patronage is not given in vain. All TSK episodes will be available 100% ad-free to my TSK Producers Club on patreon.com slash theserialkillerpodcast. No generic ads, no ad reads, no jingles. I promise. And of course, if you wish to donate $15 a month, 
That's only $7.50 per episode. You are more than welcome to join the ranks of the TSK Producers Club too. So don't miss out and join now. Imagine, if you will, dear listener, Yosemite National Park in California, USA. It is a place of unparalleled beauty, clear streams running through wide forested valleys, ringed by tumbling waterfalls. Above the valley towers awe-inspiring mountaintops that are famous the world over. If you have Apple TV, you are probably accustomed to seeing the slow-moving film of Yosemite's Half Dome and El Capitan looming above Yosemite Valley. Tourists flock to the National Park in the millions every year, and even your humble host has visited Yosemite when he was thirteen years old way back in 1994. I remember the trip to Yosemite vividly and urge all my dear listeners to go there, if you have the opportunity to do so. But, take safety precautions. The most dangerous animal in Yosemite National Park is not the mountain lion, but man. FBI agent Jeff Rineck was used to getting pulled away from home on Saturdays. But this weekend the boys were away. He and Laurie had the house to themselves. For fifteen years, she had put up with him working odd hours on cases too horrible to imagine. Now the Bureau wanted him to pick up some guy named Carrie Stainer, a possible material witness to a murder at a nudist resort in Wilton. It was not Rinek's case. His office just needed a driver. All he knew was that three days earlier, on the 21st of July, 1999, a young Yosemite nature guide had been killed. Yosemite was a sore spot for Rinek. In February, he had been removed as lead agent on an investigation involving three slain Yosemite tourists. It had been a humiliating experience, one that had deeply shaken Rinek's faith in the Bureau. More than five months earlier, on the 16th of February 1999, Carol Sun, her 15-year-old daughter Julie, and their Argentine friend failed to show up in San Francisco after a visit to Yosemite National Park. The three women who had traveled from the son's home in Eureka were supposed to meet Carol's husband, Jens, and continue on to the Grand Canyon. They wanted to show 16-year-old Silvina Peloso as many sights as possible before she returned to South America. Carol Sund had been an exchange student in Argentina when she was a teenager and had lived with Silvina's mother and her family. Sund and Silvina's mother, both in their forties, continued their friendship and wanted the same for their daughters. 
but they and their red rental cars seem to have fallen off the face of the earth. Investigators believe they had stayed the night of the 15th of February at the Cedar Lodge in El Portal, a rustic motel located just outside the park near the Merced River. Numerous witnesses saw them there that evening. But the rest was a mystery. Then a clue. Carol Sun's wallet was found on a Modesto street three days after the three disappeared. It was turned over to authorities the next day. The Mariposa County Sheriff's Department combed El Portal for leads. They found some curious inconsistencies in the motel room where the three had stayed. One of the beds was missing a top sheet, and a blanket was gone. They did not know it at the time, but shreds of Julie's pajamas were matted in the carpet. James Maddock, the special agent in charge of the Sacramento FBI office, felt sure the three had been the victim of a crime. Maybe they were attacked in their motel room or in the parking lot as they packed up their car to leave the lodge early on the 16th of February. There was also a chance that they were carjacked in Modesto. But FBI profilers sent from Quantico, Virginia, found there was just as much evidence to indicate that Carolson's car had skidded off an icy road. If the three had survived such a crash, time was running out for them. Temperatures were at freezing. Rinek was called to Modesto on the 22nd of February and was made case agent. It was one of those investigations that the whole world was watching. His career could soar, or it could crash and burn. After Rinek was put in charge of the Sun Poleso case, he spent weeks trying to hunt down bank records. Suspicious calls had been made to Carol Sun's bank by one or more women claiming to be Sund. They had Sun's social security number and were requesting financial information. So Rinek and a banking specialist tried to trace the origins of the calls. It was no easy job, and Rinek feared that his boss, Maddock, thought it was a waste of time. But Rinek believed it was the best lead they had, and continued the tedious work. As the days passed, FBI agents and sheriff's detectives began looking closely at staff at the Cedar Lodge. One employee in particular piqued their interest. The man had been seen changing the locks on the Suns and Peloso motel room on the day they vanished. He had a criminal record, and his brother was a registered sex offender. Maddock was excited. The top supervisors were sure this was their guy. Rinek advised Maddock that it was still too early to focus on any one person. Not long after their conversation, Rinek sensed a chill between them. Rinek was right not to get his hopes too high, because their suspects passed a polygraph test. 
So he and the other investigators quickly moved on. They started investigating a second employee at the Cedar Lodge. The worker agreed to take a polygraph and failed. Maddox's hopes soared. Rinek was cautious. After all, lots of innocent people fail lie detector tests. They were unable to link him to the Suns and Peloso disappearance. So, over the next couple of weeks, agents broadened their investigation by looking at sex offenders in the area. They also continued to interview large employees, including a handyman named Carrie Stainer, whom they quickly dismissed as a suspect. The rift between Maddock and Rinek was widening, and when one of the brothers, probably as a result from extremely aggressive questioning, admitted to being connected to the case, Maddock removed Rinek as lead on the case. Rinek It was kind of a relief. He felt the case was turning into a circus. Fast forward again five months. Acting on a tip from a caller who was worried about the whereabouts of his friend, Joy Ruth Armstrong, park rangers found her mutilated body on the morning of the 22nd of July. It was discovered beyond a campground adjacent to her living quarters in the Foresta community, an enclave of some thirty cabins for use by park workers. Freckled, red-haired, and full of energy and enthusiasm, Joy Armstrong loved children, nature, and teaching. She was twenty-five years old and was employed by the Yosemite Institute. The young woman had been decapitated, probably the day before her discovery. As Rinek showered, put on a pair of jeans and a t-shirt, it did not seem possible that the earlier case and this recent killing could be related. He kissed Laurie goodbye. He was amazed his wife tolerated all the extra hours he put in. Yet she always did. Like so many police detectives, he had missed countless special occasions, anniversaries, family parties. When a chase through Sacramento kept him from making his wife's 37th birthday party, Rinek dialed Laurie on his cell phone and made the suspect apologize to her for interfering with their plans. Stunts like that made Rinek popular among the other agents, but not among his bosses. He was a little too coarse for the Bureau's buttoned-down supervisors. He used profanity, and had once been written up for using sexually explicit language in the office. He was dinged for insubordination, and got into a few too many faces a few too many times. At forty-seven years old, he was a little more than two years away from early retirement. He figured the top brass would be happy if he took it, and he would not miss them one bit. It was a shame, though. He liked the work. Winding down his narrow driveway in his FBI-issued Ford, he wondered whether there was any way he could get this over with quickly and salvage the rest of the day. Rinek chose the back roads, not the highway 
from his house, forty miles east of Sacramento. He did not adhere to the speed limit on the fifty mile, that's eighty kilometers, drive to Wilton. When he got to Laguna del Sol, the resort manager was waiting for him at the gate. Two other agents and two Sacramento sheriff's deputies also had arrived. Rinek had never been to a nudist camp before. He scanned the gathering naked crowd, but was disappointed with what he saw. It is a common myth, mostly propagated by the porn industry, that nudist or naturist, as is the correct term, camps feature beautiful, frolicking young women and men. In reality, the majority of those attending such places are pensioners. There are also, usually, quite a few very out-of-shape people who feel more at home at a naturist lodge than on the common beach where they feel judged and looked down upon. Rinek and John Bowles, a cocky young agent, were directed to the resort's restaurant. Stainer was inside eating breakfast. Rinek, like most people in the area, knew of the Stainer family. Stainer's younger brother, Stephen, made national headlines in 1980, after he escaped from his abductor, Kenneth Parnell, a convicted child molester. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Quality sleep is essential for boosting energy, recovery, and well-being. So take your sleep to the next level with Sleep Number. With a Sleep Number smart bed, you can individualize your comfort level and enjoy a better sleep night after night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599, a saving of $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Time seems to be a dwindling resource nowadays. Work, family, bills, chores, and the endless time thief of social media. But imagine, if you will, dear listener, what's the first thing you'd do if you had an extra hour? In your day, a lot of us spend our lives wishing we had more time. The question is, time for what? The best way to squeeze that special thing into your schedule is to know what's important to you and make it a priority. Therapy can help you find what matters to you so you can do more of it. Everyone need someone to talk to, even psychopaths, even your humble host. So, if you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit 
betterhelp.com slash serial killer today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash serial killer. Stephen was held and sexually abused by Parnell for seven years after his kidnapping in 1972. His story had been chronicled in a book and dramatized in a television miniseries. And after surviving a hellish childhood of abuse, Stephen died in a motorcycle crash in 1989. Reinek wanted to talk to Stainer about his brother. The Bureau wanted to talk to him about the Yosemite murder. Reinek thought Stainer might have been a former boyfriend of the victim. When he and the other investigators walked into the restaurant, Stainer stood and raised his hands above his head. They thought that was a little strange. So Bowles handcuffed him as a precaution. Some of the patrons in the restaurant were nude, but Stainer was wearing shorts, a short-sleeved shirt, and a baseball cap. At thirty-seven years old, he was a good-looking guy, tall, well-built, rugged. Rinek asked Stainer if he had ever seen the movie Billy Jack, as he thought Stainer was the spitting image of the protagonist. Stainer said he had never seen the film. As they were walking to the car, Rinek explained to Stainer that he had no idea why he had been sent to interview Stainer, but they had a job to do. He further inquired Stainer if he wanted to be interviewed at the nudist camp or back at the office. Stainer said he preferred to be interviewed at the office. Rinek opened the car door and Stainer got in. The two men sat there for a while in silence. The crowd of gapers was moving closer, so Rinek figured he had better follow strict procedure just in case Stainer turned out to be more than a witness. So he read Stainer his rights. To the agent, it was all just routine. It would turn out that Rinek had spent his whole life preparing for this day, this case, this man. Rinek turned the key in the ignition and, with Stainer's guidance, left the nudist camp, found his way to Highway 99, and headed north. Bowles followed in another car. The forty-minute drive to FBI headquarters in Sacramento turned into ninety minutes because of road construction. But the delay was fortuitous. There was something about Rinek that made Stainer relax and talk. People were often caught off guard by the agent. He had the body of a wrestler, the bushy moustache of uh, the Marlboro man, but the spirituality of a clergyman. He took confessions, and people seemed to want to give them to him. So when the agent prompted Stainer to tell him about his brother, Stainer was more than willing and told the officers of the tragedy that had shaped his life so much twenty-seven years earlier. His little brother, Stephen, then seven years old, had been walking home from Charles Wright Elementary School in Merced just a few weeks before Christmas. Parnell, posing as a church minister, offered to give Stewie a ride home, and the second grader accepted 
But Parnell would never stop at the Stainer home. Instead, he drove all the way to Cathy's Valley, about forty miles away. There, Parnell, accomplice Irvin Edward Murphy, and Stephen, who was called Stewie, holed up in a little red cabin. Parnell renamed Stephen Dennis, and for the next seven years, he passed the boy off as his son by day and used him for sex at night. When Stewie was fourteen, Parnell kidnapped and brought home five-year-old Timmy White. Stephen wanted to save Timmy, so he summoned up enough courage to escape. The two hitchhiked from Manchester, a tiny coastal town in Mendocino County, into Ukiah, where they walked to the police station. Carrie Stainer was eighteen when his brother came home. He was returning from a camping trip at Yosemite when he heard the news of Stewie's escape on the radio. By the time he got to Merced, news crews had taken over the small town. Rinek asked him how he felt about the investigation into his brother's disappearance, and if he felt law enforcement had acted professionally and given him and his family the aid they needed. Stainer got emotional at this, and said he thought Parnell got off too easy. For some reason, he was only sentenced to seven years in prison for the kidnappings. He also voiced anger at the driver who had killed his brother during a hit-and-run accident in 1989. Rinek listened to Stainer as he talked. He watched as his passenger's eyes welled up with tears. He had seen that kind of sadness countless times, in the family members of victims, and it still made him feel awful. He never got used to it. Stainer and Rinek continued to talk much of the way to FBI headquarters. Rinek found his passenger to be likable and intelligent. As they drove up to the FBI complex, Rinek noticed that the parking lot was nearly empty. Many of the agents were still at the murder scene in Yosemite interviewing friends and family members of the victim. It was 29 degrees centigrade in Sacramento that day, cooler than usual for July, but still hot. The office felt like a sauna. Rinek was sweating, and he had to use the bathroom. He left Stainer alone in a small office, while he relieved himself. Then he went to the lounge, where he rummaged through the candy bowl looking for chocolate. After devouring a candy bar, he and Bowles prepared for the interview, setting up fingerprinting, mugshots, a lie detector test. Before the polygrapher had time to set up his equipment, Stainer asked Rinek whether he could speak to him, alone, just the two of them. With Bowles out of the room, Stainer confided that he had been a bad boy. He told the agent that he had been sexually abused at the hands of a relative when he was eleven years old. To make matters worse, his uncle had showed him pictures of naked ten-year-old girls and had fondled his genitalia while he did so. He also confessed to Rinek that he had never had a normal relationship with a woman. And then Stainer, seemingly out of nowhere, said something that stopped Rinek dead in his tracks. 
Stainer said, and I quote, I can give you closure, end quote. Rinek felt like someone had just poured ice-cold water over his head. Unsure about what Stainer was talking about, Rinek waded in slowly and cautiously. He asked if he was referring to what had happened up in Yosemite. Stainer replied in the affirmative, and that there was more. When Rinek inquired what he meant by more, Stainer replied, and again I quote, everything. End quote. Over the next several hours, Stainer confessed to what actually had happened to the three women in February and to Joy in July. Ever since his brother's abduction, when Stainer was only eleven years old, he had harbored dark fantasies regarding the murder of women. He could not explain why he had these urges, but he had managed to keep them at bay until recently. Carol, Julie, and Sylvina had checked into the motel in February, and as they did so, Carrie Stainer had been watching. He had particularly noticed the youngest girl, Julie. She was very petite and pretty, and he wanted to rape her. What follows? is Stainer's own account of what occurred this terrible evening. Listener discretion is advised, as I quote. I pulled my gun out, and I told them I wanted the money and the keys to the car. The two girls were on the bed, closest to the front door. The girl turned around, the mother got up to get the money out of her purse, and I told her to get back on the bed. I would get it. So they all got in the beds, and I put their hands behind their backs. I tied them all up. I led the two girls into the bathroom, sat them down on the bathroom floor, and I strangled the mother, appeared dead with a piece of rope. I put her in the trunk of the car. I went back into the room and took both the girls into, out of the bathroom and back into the main room, and I stripped their clothes off, off them, cut their clothes off, off of them. And the Peloso girl couldn't speak very good English, was crying a lot, and Julie was very calm. I had oral sex with Julie, and performed it on her for quite a while, and I made her perform it on me. And the Peloso girl was unwilling to participate, and then she was also on her monthly cycle, so it's a turn-off. I took her into the bathroom put her in the bathtub, and I strangled her. Went back into the main room and continued with Julie, sexually assaulting her. She was very cooperative. She did everything I told her to. No tears, no nothing. I did not beat her, didn't torture her, just had sex. She said afterward she wanted to go to the bathroom. I couldn't take her to the bathroom with her, f her friend dead in the tub, so I took her next door into room 510. I made her shave herself. She was very cooperative. She didn't fight me or assist at all. While she was doing that, I went and removed the body from the shower, put it in the trunk. It was getting pretty late, probably five o'clock or so in the morning. I told Julie we had to get someplace to go. I wouldn't harm her. So I put her in the car 
Her hands were duct taped in front of her. I wrapped a pink blanket around her and just drove. I didn't know where I was going. I didn't know what I was going to do. I had driven to Mariposa and I hit Highway 49. I drove and I drove. I didn't know what I was going to do or how I was going to do it or anything. I just kept driving. And uh, seeing as I was in uh, Tulumne County and uh, it was by Moccasin, and uh, a place called Moccasin Turnout or Vista Point or whatever, and I saw I was at Vista Point with the parking lot off the main road, so I pulled in there. And uh, li- like the, uh, the sun, the sun wasn't up yet. This light, the sky, was starting to lighting up just slightly. I took Julie out of the car, and I carried her in the pathway. I laid out the blanket, and she performed oral sex on me. I guess I knew what I was going to do, because I had the knife with me. And I turned around. I believe I told her that the gun was never loaded, because it wasn't at the time. And I slit her throat. I covered her body with some brush. I picked up the towel and the blankets, and I left and I threw the blanket up on top of the hill, and I left in the car. End quote. What is important to note, Dell is nice, that even though Stainer in his interviews with police stated that he wanted to kill the women as humanely as possible, what he in fact did was the exact opposite. As I've stated many times on this podcast, Strangulation is one of the most traumatic and painful deaths possible, and having your throat slit is perhaps the most painful way to die, aside from burning alive or being flayed alive. After killing the women, he resumed to live his normal life. That is, until one day he was out hiking. He came upon Joy Armstrong at her house in the forest. What follows is Stainer's account of what he did to her. I quote, She was going in and out of the house, loading things into her vehicle, and I was just over there, throwing rocks in the creek, and I just happened to notice her walk out again and again. It seemed like she was alone. I had a backpack, small green backpack, and in the backpack I, uh, had a twenty-two revolver and a large knife and duct tape. I walked by the house once and went down to the barn, just walking around it. I walked back by the house and she was out front and we started talking. And she stepped up on the porch and was talking to me. And then she turned around. That's when I pulled out the gun and I put it to her head. Turned around and freaked out. I told her to go inside took her to the back corner of the uh, the house, two bedrooms, where I duct tape her and gagged her. She resisted quite a bit. I didn't hit her or anything. I just used threats and a gun to subdue her. As I was trying to duct tape her hands behind her back, she kept fighting me. I finally got her duct taped, and I gagged her with the duct tape. Then I led her out of the house. I had her by the arm, and I went by her truck. I took the keys out of her truck, that were in the back of the hatch of the camper shell, and closed the door. My truck was parked down by the bridge. 
I took her down to my truck and put her in the back seat, and she was fighting all the way. I proceeded to turn around and drive down, cause I was going to drive up through the residential area and back side of the hill around where there's a little more privacy. I didn't duct tape her feet. She started kicking and fighting. She was very strong, very wired girl. And as I was driving, she started going crazy, just jumping all over the place in the back of the truck. I couldn't really control her, and she fell out of the window onto the, uh, onto the road. She was out very quickly. Surprised me. I slammed the truck into park and jumped out, and she had gotten up off the ground and started running. This was on the dirt road we were on. She started running for the asphalt road. I caught her in time before she got there. And there was quite a few cabins that, uh, you know, could easily, if someone was looking at a window or sitting on a deck, they could have seen what was going on. I kind of freaked out, and uh, I had a knife in my back pocket. I tried to subdue her, but she was fighting very hard, even being tied up. Surprised me. She was tough. And it was, um, the area that we were in was in plain view. So I tried to drag her off into the side of the hill, took the knife from my back pocket, and I slit her throat. And she didn't die right away. So I dragged her another 10-15 feet to an area where I thought she was more visible. I finished the job by slicing through her throat several times until she was obviously dead. I drug her down to the little canal by some bushes. I left her there, and I went up to my truck, because it was parked in the middle of the road with the engine running. I parked my truck in a parking area next to an asphalt road, and I went back down to the little canal, and I cut her head off. End quote. Steiner was tried in federal court for Armstrong's murder since it occurred on federal land. To avoid a possible death sentence, he pleaded guilty to premeditated first-degree murder, felony first-degree murder, kidnapping, resulting in death, and attempted aggravated sexual abuse, ending in death. During the sentencing hearing, Stainer stunned the courtroom when he suddenly broke down in tears and apologized. I quote, I wish I could take it back, but I can't. I wish I could tell you why I did such a thing, but I don't even know myself. I'm so sorry. I wish there was a reason, but there isn't. It's senseless. End quote. Leslie Armstrong, Armstrong's mother, started crying as she listened to Stainer, and said afterward that she believed his apology was genuine. Stainer was sentenced to life in prison without parole. Stainer pleaded not guilty by reason of insanity to the other murders in state court. His lawyers claimed that the Stainer family had a history of sexual abuse and mental illness, manifesting itself not only in the murders, but also his obsessive-compulsive disorder and his very odd request to be provided with child pornography in return for his confession. Dr. Jose Arturo Silva testified that Stainer had obsessive-compulsive disorder, mild autism, and paraphilia. He was nevertheless found sane and convicted of three counts of first-degree murder 
with special circumstances and one count of kidnapping by a jury on the 27th of August 2002. After being sentenced to death for the brutal killings, Steiner has been housed at the Adjustment Center on Death Row at San Quentin Penitentiary in California since 2002. Steiner remains on death row as of October 2022. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the Internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. And so ends... The Saga of Carrie Stainer, the Yosemite Slayer. Next episode will feature a fresh new serial killer expose. So, as they say in the land of radio, stay tuned. What follows is a message to my dear Norwegian listeners in Norwegian. Som du kanskje har fått med deg, er seriemordepodden nå lansert. Første og andre episode har vært tilgjengelig en god stund. Episode 3 i sagan om Jeffrey Dahmer er tilgjengelig samtidig som du lytter til dette. Så som de sier i Radioland, følg med. Finally, I wish to thank you, dear listener, for listening. If you like this podcast, you can support it by donating on patreon.com slash theserialkillerpodcast by leaving a review on Apple Podcasts facebook.com slash the sk podcast or by posting on the subreddit the sk podcast thank you good night and good luck <laughs>